And some people have their entire life defined by this sort of failure. They feel deeply in their bones that they are failures. And even if they've done nothing to contribute to a specific failure, even if you are a completely innocent victim, there's still this psychology that goes on that we still blame ourselves even as victims. Because in those circumstances, we can say that we failed to defend ourselves or we failed to be more diligent. Even something as innocent as getting rear-ended in a, in a traffic accident, you say, well, you've done absolutely nothing wrong, and of course that's generally true, but there's still, if you've ever been rear-ended in a car accident, I mean, I used to work for an insurance company, and one of the things that the insurance companies always push for is shared responsibility. Every single car accident that you've pretty much ever been in has a a element of shared responsibility in that no one is ever 100% innocent or 100% guilty, except in the cases of getting rear-ended, because, of course, then one car is just completely stopped and doing nothing. And if that's ever happened to you, if you've ever been the victim of something like that, where you were just standing there, sitting there, minding your own business, and then became the victim of, of something like that, There's a psychology that happens that we still tend to blame ourselves. That maybe we could have done something different to avoid that. Maybe we could have been more diligent in watching the rearview mirror. I have avoided being hit from the back uh, by watching the rearview mirror and seeing, oh, that person's going to hit me. And then moving forward, and they miss me. That's been a grace of God in my life. But even beyond that, there's this sense that when something bad happens to us, even if it's completely not our fault, we still think that we failed in somehow, like we're being punished, like we've done something to deserve that. And in all of this, it's, it just leads to despair. And despairing nowadays can be a really bad disease. And it can be something that we really wrestle and struggle with. I saw a statistic from the CDC. Now, you can take this for what it's worth because it's from the CDC. I understand many of you do not trust the CDC very much anymore, and and I would say that there is probably good reason for that, but the statistic that I want to cite is about the despair that is associated with suicidal ideation. And I'll spare you a lot of the details, but just give you this one fact that really shocked me that says that as of 2022, 13% of teenage girls have attempted suicide. 13%. And of course, the numbers are much higher for, for teenagers or for adults who have thought about suicide or made a plan for suicide. You see, we live in a world that's full of despair. And a lot of that is related to our own inner sense of failure. 
which is related to our own lack of purpose and meaning. There can be lots of successful-looking people in this world, people who have money and a nice car and a healthy family and a good job and all the things that we consider to be successful in this day and age. And yet, they can still wrestle with failure in really deep and significant ways. We all miss the mark, and we all have a duty to take on responsibility, to not give up. So me coming up here and preaching is always very difficult because I take it as a great responsibility to pick up and to handle God's word and to be able to share it with you in a way that, that blesses you and that God uses. It's a great responsibility, and sometimes it scares me, and sometimes I fail. Sometimes I may not have anything good to say. And I'm keenly aware that there's plenty of preachers out there who do more harm than good. And that's the last thing that I would ever want to happen. And any time a person gets up in front of another larger group of people to say something, you know it's one of the greatest fears that there are is public speaking. Maybe you can relate with that. And I think the main reason for that is the weight of responsibility that comes with it. You're all looking at me. <laughs> and here I am rambling on, right? Trying to say something. Something that might bless you or that the Lord might use to encourage you. That's a weight of responsibility. Now, I could run away from that, and I could give up, and I could say I'm no good, and certainly it's true that I've messed up and failed at this before. I always tell my kids who are, who also, children wrestle with this a lot, this idea of, of failure, because they're forming their identities and their identities are kind of polarized around failures and successes, what works and what doesn't work, and, and how they're going to become a, a fully functional human being who can, who can have value and identity. And so a lot of times kids will wrestle with failure, and they fail one time, and it just crushes them completely. They're no good anymore. They've messed up. They can't get it right. What's the point of living? And you saw this from the CDC statistics that I cited a little bit before. But I see it in my own kids. When they fail at something, it is really, really, really hard on them. And I try to encourage them and kind of have a little bit of a mantra along these lines that says, if you're not failing, then you're not really trying. Because in this life, anything that you try is going to be a struggle. You're going to mess up. You're going to fail. But the ultimate idea, the ultimate goal is that you not give up. Don't give up on the responsibility that has been given to you. It's heavy. I know that. Responsibility in this life, in whatever form it may take for you, is a heavy burden. Being a husband, being a wife, being a father, being a mother, being an employee, being a friend, being a neighbor, 
Most of all, being a child of God, being a witness of Jesus Christ. These are all responsibilities that give our lives true meaning and purpose. And they can be hard, and we can be afraid of failing, and many, many people have just cast that off. And how many people do you know that have kind of checked out on permanent vacation in life? That the goal of their life is to just be as comfortable as possible, as safe as possible. But how does that really fulfill them? I can get rid of all the responsibility in my life. I can give up on everything. I can run away. I can go live in the mountains. And I, I won't let anyone down anymore. I won't hurt anybody anymore to an extent, obviously. The act itself is going to cause quite a bit of tragedy. But, but I could try to escape from my responsibilities. And ultimately, that won't offer me or give me any relief whatsoever. If we want our lives to have real purpose and value and meaning, we need to take on that responsibility and we need to carry it. And we're going to mess up and we're going to fail. And that's true of every single one of us. But we get back up and we keep moving forward. Now, what is our ultimate responsibility our greatest responsibility in life. It's what you were created for. To honor a holy God is our greatest responsibility. That's why you were created. To give glory and honor to the one who created you. To the extent that your life is not doing that is to the extent of the life that is the extent to is the extent to which your life has missed the mark. And as I said before, you can seem like you're super successful in every way, but if your life isn't giving glory and honor to God, then you're not actually fulfilling the responsibility for which God created you. Why else are we here? Why else are we breathing? Why else does life and the world and everything exist? It exists to honor a holy God. And the primary way, the primary means that we live that out is by living Jesus by being his hands and feet by bringing him and showing him to other people by showing the same acts of love and sacrifice that he did so that we can bring the Messiah into the world so if you struggle with a sense of being a failure if you're constantly wrestling with that, I just want to encourage you this morning that it's normal that we all wrestle with that, that the grace of God is always available to us, that if you are in Jesus Christ, God will always be with you, even in your deepest, darkest failures, ready to forgive you and to redeem those circumstances as it says in Romans 8, to use all things and work all things in your life for good. And so it's no surprise if what I'm saying is true that the Bible is absolutely full of failures. 
You can't name one character in Scripture besides Jesus who did not fail in some really significant ways. Now, I could, I could literally turn to any page of this and find an example. But I want to share one specific story with you from the book of Genesis, right from the beginning. It's a story about failure. It's a story about giving up. It's a story about someone who was a victim of circumstances, of other people, who had every reason to despair and to give up forever with no hope whatsoever, but they didn't. And it's also a story that's very confusing, as some things in the Bible tend to be. The story that I'm about to read to you is one of those stories in the Bible that maybe the first time you pick up the Bible or the second time or the third time or the hundredth time, you pick up the Bible and you read this story and it's one of those stories that just makes you question the whole Bible because it's so weird. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't apply to me at all. I don't understand this. It seems goofy. It seems out of place. It must just be the ramblings of some ancient goof. But let's see if we can understand it together in this context. I want to read to you the story of Judah and Tamar. Have anyone ever read this story before? Judah and Tamar? It's a very strange story. But let me give you a little background before I read, read out of this. It's, the whole story itself is just in Genesis chapter 38. But there's a little bit of background that needs to be set up here first. So Judah was the son of Jacob. He was his fourth son. And Jacob, of course, was renamed Israel, which is an interesting name. It's a name that ultimately represents the people of God, Israel. And it's a name that's so packed with meaning because the name Israel can mean several different things depending on how you translate it because the, the words involved that make up Israel are, are a bit general. And it can mean one who wrestles or struggles with God. It can also mean one who perseveres with God. And it can also mean one who prevails with God. And so even in the name Israel, we get this idea that there is always going to be struggle in life, but God is always with us. And if we persevere, we will prevail. And that is the name of the man who represented God's people, God's chosen people. He had 12 sons. As I mentioned, his fourth son was Judah, and he had other sons and daughters as well, but his 11th son was his favorite. His 11th son was Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. And Joseph had some dreams in chapter 37 that he decided to share with his family. And these two dreams said that one day all of his brothers and even his parents would one day bow down before him. Now, if my son came to me 
and said that he had a dream that one day I would bow down before him. I might take that. I'm not sure how I would take that. But the way that Joseph's, or the way that Joseph's family took this was that he was just completely arrogant. Proud and arrogant, and so they despised him for it. And so as the story goes, at the end of chapter 37, his brothers have quite a bit of animosity for him. And while they're off in Shechem, uh, tending their sheep and grazing their flock, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, sends Joseph out to find them. He wants to have a report of what his other sons are up to. So he sends this young 17-year-old boy named Joseph out to find his brothers and send back a report. Now, there's this really interesting part that we shouldn't overlook at the, at the beginning of this story, and that says Joseph is going out to find his brothers. He gets lost. He goes to where he thinks they should be, and they're not there. He goes to where his father told him to go to look for them, and they're not there. And it literally says that he's wandering around a field looking for them. Now, at this point, he can't find them. He has no idea where they are. If, if something else had not happened, he would have gone home back to his father and said, I can't find them. But something really interesting happens in Scripture. A, he finds a stranger or a stranger finds him. Some random guy in this field that Joseph is wandering around in, they meet, they bump into each other, and this stranger just happens to know where Joseph's brothers are. So he sends him off in the right direction. And Joseph finds his brothers. And his brothers see him off in the distance. And it says that when they saw him off in the distance, it says they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So just consider this. Joseph's about to be the victim of a really heinous tragedy a heinous crime. If it hadn't been for that random stranger in the field, it would have never happened. We have to consider God's sovereignty in everything that happens to us. Even when, even when it seems like it's something really tragic, we have to consider that God is sovereign over everything that happens to us and everything that goes on. And that's ultimately one of the, the most important facts of this story, is that God is in control. So what happens? Joseph's brothers see him off in the distance. They say, let's kill him. And Reuben, the first son of Israel, he's not quite as bad as the rest. He actually wants to rescue Joseph. So he talks the rest of the brothers, as the oldest brother, he talks the rest of the brothers into not killing Joseph. Instead, he says, let's just throw him into this pit here. It was an empty well. Let's just throw Joseph in there. Let what happens to him happen to him. Maybe he dies. Maybe he doesn't. But let's not be guilty of his blood. Reuben actually had an intention of going back later when everyone was gone and rescuing Joseph out of this pit. 
and bringing him back to his father. So that was the plan. Reuben was going to rescue Joseph. But then something else happens. One of the other brothers gets involved. And this is actually our first introduction to the character of Judah. Judah says, sees a group of Midianite, Ishmaelite traders off in the distance. And he decides, well, let's, let's sell Joseph. Not only can we get rid of him, not only can we basically absolve ourselves of blood guilt or murder, but we can also make a profit on it. So it seemed like a good plan. And all the other brothers agreed. Joseph is sold into slavery by Judah's, by Judah's doing. And Reuben's plan to rescue his younger brother is completely, completely spoiled. And so this is the background that leads us up to chapter 38. And I'm going to read all of chapter 38. You can read along with me. It's not terribly long. And it might seem strange at first, as I said. But I want us to take some time with it and understand that everything in God's word is there for a reason. And everything in God's word is intentional. Even stories like this. So chapter 38 begins... It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So it starts off right away. It happened at that time, which means right after Judah's plan to sell Joseph off to the Ishmaelite traders into slavery. This is the time that we're talking about. Verse 2 says, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage." When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that I may come in, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet ring, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and putting on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It's a strange story. And many, many people have read this story and either decided to categorize it as irrelevant or too strange to understand and I would venture to imagine that many people in the history of Scripture have read this story and chosen just to give up on the Bible altogether because it's just too strange. It seems to be promoting this subjection of women and it doesn't offer any condemnation of the behavior whatsoever. So is it promoting this type of behavior What's going on in this story? What are we supposed to take out of this? So to understand this, and I say to understand all of Scripture, we really need to understand that the people who are characters in the past and history are no different than you and me whatsoever. They have the same types of feelings, the same types of motivations. They are all in the same type of struggle and wrestling that we are. It's not new. 
They didn't have all their act together and have everything right, and neither do we. When you put this story into its context, it makes a lot of sense. The entire hope for Israel's family, for Abraham's grandsons and great-grandsons, was that they would be in relationship with God, that they would be inheritors of a great kingdom, of a land and a people and a king. And this king would be one who came out of their own family line. And it would have been understood that this king would actually be the savior of the world who had been foretold to them from centuries past. This was a great honor and a great responsibility that they were to carry on. And having children was a natural part of that. Now you understand that in, in this historical context, having children was everything. It meant so much. There's so many stories in Scripture about men, or particularly women, who sacrificed nearly everything just to have one child. It was such a crucial part of their identity that their stories of women even giving their children away if the Lord would just simply allow them to say that they had a child, someone to carry on their family line, their seed. And it was even more important for the family of Israel because they had been promised that this Savior, this King, would come from their line. To give up on that would be to give up on not only life itself, but to give up on any hope for this promise to come true. So the way that I understand this is that Judah had completely given up. He was a failure. I think that he was most certainly racked. It doesn't say it. But it would be almost certain that he was racked by guilt over what he did to Joseph. Does it need to say that in order for us to understand that? Does the scripture need to say that what Judah did was wrong for us to understand that it was wrong? Does it need to say that Judah felt guilty and ashamed in order for us to understand that Judah felt guilty and ashamed? I don't think so. There's not many people in this world. In fact, there's so few people that could do something like that and feel no guilt or shame whatsoever that we actually classify them as mentally ill sociopaths who have no empathy or sympathy or feeling for other people whatsoever. I don't think that Judah was suffering from that. I think that he felt a tremendous burden of guilt and shame over what he had done to Joseph, selling him off, coming up with this idea to tell his dad that his youngest favorite son was dead. It broke his dad's heart. His dad said that at that point in his life, he was as good as dead because he had lost Joseph. And it was Judah's fault. Sure, all the other brothers wanted to kill him, but Judah was the one who ultimately came up with the plan to get rid of him. And so what do we see from this story? We see that Judah, racked with guilt, had left his family. It says that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. 
He left his family. He couldn't stand to be around them anymore. The guilt was too much for him. The shame was too much for him. And he said, I'm out of here. He went off into the mountains to live by himself. He got a wife from among the Canaanites, which had been forbidden to his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, been forbidden to them to take a wife from among the Canaanites. But he did it because who cares? He was giving up on the promise that had been made to his family. He was a failure as a father. His children were wicked and evil. His first one was so wicked and evil, we don't even know what he did, but it was the Lord himself who put him to death. Then his second son, Onan, also had no sense of responsibility for his family. And he knew that if he did his duty by raising up an offspring for his dead older brother, which is a practice in the ancient world that is even a practice under the Mosaic law called uh, Leverite marriage, that if your brother married and was not able to produce an offspring before he passed away, that the next brother in line had a duty, a scriptural duty, but a cultural duty as well, to impregnate, impregnate his dead brother's wife so that that offspring would actually belong to his older brother and carry on that line. This was a very serious duty and responsibility. And Onan knew, gave up on it. He knew that if he did that, if he did the right thing, that it would be cutting into his inheritance. He would, if he could keep his older brother dead and his line dead, he would get that inheritance. That's wicked. And so the Lord put him to death too. Where was Judah in all this? Why wasn't he raising up his kids? You know, when you have a father who's given up and failure and guilt and shame, it tends to spread to the next generation. So then what does he do with Tamar? Tamar, who all along has been a helpless victim. In that, in that day, in that culture, she would have just been purchased to be a wife. And she was, you would have been purchased to be a wife for a wicked man. And then when he died, she was given to another wicked man who wouldn't fulfill her hope of one day becoming a mother. And then when he died, she was just sent away. Judah could have kept her around. He had a third son. According to custom, the third son would now come into place and be her husband or raise up offspring for his brothers. But he was being inexplicably held back by Judah. Judah sent her away to live a life as a widow, which was no life at all. She would have no inheritance, no hope, nothing whatsoever. Judah had given up, sent Tamar away. And what does he do? Nothing. At this point in the story, there is absolutely no intention on Judah's part to have any more offspring, to carry on the family name whatsoever. He's mistreated Tamar, and then he mistreats her again when he uses her as a prostitute. Now, Tamar didn't completely give up. 
as a victim of, of abuse in those types of circumstances and in that culture, you can certainly imagine Tamar being or feeling completely helpless. And she could have easily just given up. But she didn't. She did something, right? That's clear. She did something. What did she do? Well, she went and sat on the side of the road. Now, to think that Tamar had some sort of grand plan, some grandiose plan of prostituting herself, becoming pregnant by Judah, and having this all work out in her failure, to think that she had that kind of plan in place, it's a bit of a stretch. First of all, it, she, didn't, she didn't instigate the timing of this. She simply heard that Judah was coming up along this road to shear his sheep. How she heard, I don't know, but she heard about it. The timing was not in her control, which means she would have no way of knowing that she could actually be fertile for pregnancy or for being impregnated. And then she didn't instigate anything when she saw Judah. He instigated everything with her. So to say that she had some sort of grand plan in this, I think, is a bit of a stretch. But she did something. She tried something. She, her hope was so thin, but yet she didn't completely give up. She stepped out with some sort of faith in some sort of hope that something would happen. Ultimately, in the course of the events that did take place, her conscience is clean because it has been proven historically. I explained to you this idea of Leverite marriage where the brother would produce an offspring. In Canaanite culture, outside of the Bible, but obviously interlaced with it in, in culture in many ways, in Canaanite culture, if the husband dies and doesn't produce an offspring, the responsibility for producing that offspring doesn't go to the next brother in line in Canaanite culture. It goes to the father-in-law. So in her conscience, she was just following the law. If the father-in-law of her deceased husband, if the father of her deceased husband, her father-in-law produced this offspring, that was okay according to her laws and customs. But again, she didn't instigate any of this. And ultimately, she ends up getting used and abused by Judah all over again. He treats her as a common prostitute. He doesn't even recognize her. What does that tell you? So, she becomes pregnant. And Judah, finding out that she has become pregnant, calls her out to be burned, to be executed. But then when he finds out that it was actually him who impregnated her, what happens? He says, she is more righteous than I am. This is the turning point for Judah. Judah. 
it's clear to me that Judah had given up on any sort of promises that God had made to him or to his family, on even being having a family of his own. He had given up. And something about this started to transform his heart. And he had another child, another chance. He saw that what he had done was wrong. And somehow, in Tamar not giving up, it encouraged him also not to give up. And we see a complete transformation in his life from this point forward. Whereas before, he had betrayed his younger brother and sold him off. Now, there was a complete, he had the same opportunity to do the same thing. When they go to Egypt and find Joseph after all of this time, and Joseph plays little tricks on them before revealing their identity, one of the things that Joseph does to test all of his brothers is to take the youngest one, Benjamin, who was the 12th son, the only one younger than him, to take him, to trap him in a plot, and say that he was going to hold him back as a slave, but that the other brothers could go free. And it was Judah who steps up. It was Judah who steps up and says that he will give his life as a ransom for this boy for this younger brother. And we see that the complete transformation of a man who was willing to callously sell his brother to a man who was willing to give up his own life for his younger brother. Completely paralleled, completely juxtaposed, and completely different responses. Judah was changed. We could also talk about Joseph in this story. Obviously a victim. Obviously having every reason to despair and give up. Being betrayed by all of his brothers. Being sold into slavery. He might have thought that he found some reprieve in Potiphar's house. Things were going okay until he was accused of molesting his owner's wife. Then he was thrown into prison. Thirteen years he suffered as a slave. Thirteen years. And what does he say in the end? He could have given up. He could have despaired. He could have said it was all his fault. His arrogance. What could he have done differently? What did he do to deserve this? Could he, maybe he shouldn't have shared those dreams. Maybe they were a bit arrogant. But in the end, he says that what what men have intended for evil, God has orchestrated for good. The Bible is full of failures. And that's because the Bible is full of human beings. Real people. Not made up stories, but real people. Just like you and me, who are completely relatable to us. 
They're not far off ancient heroes. They're not people who are totally different from us. They are people that are very much the same as us and struggle with the same things as us. Guilt and shame and despair that we have all experienced to one degree or another. But the lesson that we learn is to not give up. Keep taking on that responsibility to live the life that God has called you to live. To bring the Messiah into the world. Because ultimately, what this story teaches us is that this turning, this repentance of Judah, this hope, this thin hope of Tamar, this persevering of Joseph in 13 years of slavery, all of it was directly used by God to bring the Messiah into the world. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Tamar's name is written in that genealogy because it was her son Perez, the first of the two twins, that God chose to be the lineage of Jesus Christ. Joseph's perseverance led to his family being saved and the preservation of that same line. Tamar would have been taken from her Canaanite culture. She would have been brought into the family of Israel. She would have gone to Egypt with the rest of her family, she would have met Joseph. She would have learned of these promises that God made to the family of Abraham. And she, she would have believed in them. When we don't give up, which is so tempting and so easy to do, and giving up doesn't have to look like rolling over and sitting in the mud. It doesn't have to look like moving away and finding a little secluded shack in the mountains for the rest of your life. Giving up can simply look like just going through the motions. Giving up can look like a totally successful person with a great job and a healthy family and a nice car. But they've given up on the true responsibility for that they've been called to. When we don't give up on that, when we keep moving forward despite the failure despite the shame and despite the guilt, when we keep moving forward, God will always use that and redeem those circumstances and allow our lives to bring the Messiah into the world, to share Jesus with each other and with our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and our lives will be a testimony, not of a perfect life, but of a life that has been messed up more times than you can count, but that God never leaves you or forsakes you, and he's always with you. And ultimately, all of our shame and guilt and all of our failure has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we do stand in the end as complete successes in God's sight, perfect and holy, just as we have always been called to be. So don't despair. Know that 
these stories, these weird, strange stories, and all these strange people in the Bible, they were written to encourage us. They're not unlike us. You mess up, we mess up, they messed up. God's grace is always there, and you can always move forward. Always move forward. Never give up. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word that encourages us. We thank you for the hope that we have, Lord. And we do pray that you would forgive us for all the many failures that we have in our lives. Failures to love you, failures to love others. But we thank you that there is grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, grace that never runs out and that is always there ready to meet us. And we pray that you would encourage us to keep moving forward, to keep persevering, and that you may use our lives to bring Jesus into this lost and hurting world. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.